Well, I hope you're coming from a, a good week, and I appreciate the, the birthday wishes. That was very kind. I never, anybody else like this, you're never quite sure how to respond to that song. Should you be like joining in, singing to yourself, or just standing there awkward? I chose the latter. Uh, <laughs> yes, I appreciate that. <laughs> So, but thank you very much. It's been a a great birthday week. Although my wife is in Canada visiting uh, some family members up there. She has a cousin that's getting married. But to offset that, my parents came in from Colorado. So that's nice to have them here. And so um, anyway, we're concluding this morning. We're uh, concluding our series that we've been working through for the last, I don't know how many weeks, six uh, or eight weeks where we've been talking about average Joes and looking at how God does amazing things through ordinary people. And uh, this morning we're concluding with that, and in relation to our, our, uh, the, the person that we're speaking about this morning, I was thinking about different occupations that we have in our culture, and, and sometimes uh, when you say a certain job that you have, it's held in pretty high, high esteem. If you think of someone saying, like, yes, I'm a doctor, you're like, nice, I'm a, I'm a lawyer, maybe not so much, uh, pro- <laughs> professor, professor held in high, re- high esteem. And the, in, this, in this area, for sure, if you're an actor, or a musician, or a producer, like held in high regard, but thinking about different things that, uh, different occupations that maybe aren't held as quite as high regard. I was in a conversation one time as a, as a pastor, and I was talking to this gentleman, and I was asking about what he does, and he was like, I, I work in a crematory for pets. Huh, what do you, what do, you do with that? And he's like, yeah, I adjust the temperature of the, of the incinerator. And I'm like, whoa, cool. So I went to visit his work, and I'm not even joking to see uh, what he did. Pretty fascinating. But, uh, but point being is, uh, and you're like, well, how does that relate? Point being is that in any culture, there's kind of a hierarchy of different ways that uh, uh, jobs and things are perceived, and, and that culture wouldn't have been any different. And the, the person that we're speaking about this morning, as we conclude by looking at a woman's life uh, by the name of Rahab, was her occupation would have been in any dinner, dinner party you're talking to, so what do you do? I'm a prostitute. Probably wouldn't have been received very well. I mean, try that on for size the next time you're in a conversation just to see how somebody receives that. Uh, probably not the, really elevated even in that culture, in this culture today, uh, more of, a, of a, a position not of choice but out of, uh, out of necessity, I would imagine. And so this morning we're going to see the story of Rahab. But however, the thing that's so neat about our main character today is that she's not seen as an outcast that sneaks into God's kingdom, she's seen as a trophy of God's grace and his forgiveness. That's the way God sees people. He doesn't see people as an outlier of like, oh, well, this is what you do. Like, woe is you. No, she's celebrated. She's talked about in the Old Testament, in the New Testament. She's celebrated for one simple thing, her faith. She'd put her trust in God. And to me, I find that encouraging about the character of our God, the one that we're, we're serving and we're following here, is that he isn't like that. He's not like our culture. He celebrates the, 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 the needy and those who are desperate for redemption and shows that we can have abundant life, even coming from a difficult past such as Rahab. Let me pray before we dive in. Dear Lord, we thank you this morning for a chance to be together in your house and even already blessed by an opportunity to sing of your greatness and your faithfulness and the way you meet us at our place of need. We pray now that you'd speak through this text, that you'd amplify, uh, just that your character would be amplified in this story of of grace and forgiveness and of restoration and redemption, all the things that you just do. God, we're thankful for that. I pray that you'd speak through this text 
uh, that you would be great and I'd be small. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. Well, you can start turning with me, if you don't mind, to Joshua 2. That's where our story is found, or the majority of the account. While you're turning there, I can give you a little bit of a background. You know, it's real hard to follow these stories if you don't have a Bible in front of you. So if you don't have one, you can grab a Bible from the pew in front of you. Uh, I guess it's not a pew, it's a chair. But um, you can grab one there. And a little background on uh, the story is Rahab was living in a city that was headed towards destruction due to its unbelief and blatant rebellion. Jericho was the primary city in that area. It was the center of idol worship. What they were most known for was worshiping the god named Ashtaroth, which is the goddess of the moon. And because of the rebellion, because of their choice to reject the god of the Israelites, they were headed towards punishment. In fact, Hebrews 11.31, you can see it on the screen there, says this, By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who, who were dis, disobedient. The two things that you see there is one was that they're about to be punished for their disobedience. And you see the key word is the, the thing that redirected their uh, or Rahab's eternity and her family's uh, future was that word faith. And so she's a story. She's a picture of God's response to anyone that would have put their faith in him. That's the truth of that time as you look at these different nations that, were, uh, that, that saw uh, even complete annihilation. The opportunity was still extended even in that time as you're reading through the Old Testament. A lot of times you read through the Old Testament and you're like, what's going on here? Such, uh, such uh, punishment and such uh, just drastic measures. But still, this is a picture of an example of just anyone, what it would take, just the simple belief and trust in God and God would have rescued people. And so to me, I see hope in that, and I learn a bit about the character of God. But take a look at, at chapter 2, verse 1. We're going to see a lot about this woman and learn about what it looks like to truly follow the Lord in faith. It says this, And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and lodged there, and it was told to the king of Jericho. Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. Let's pause there for, for a moment, a little bit of explanation. The first thing that you should know is this is Israel has set up camp just on the other side of the river next to Jericho, and they're just finishing the past 40 years of wandering. You're, if you're familiar with the nation of Israel, that was a long season after what their lack of faith, and now they're about to be introduced to a woman of faith, which is pretty interesting. But because Jericho was the largest city in that region, if you think militarily-wise, they were wanting to move into this land, which was a region of Canaan, the most obvious first step in that process would be to take out the major city, right? Does that make sense from all you military experts? And so Joshua is sending in his spies, kind of the same thing that played out 40 years prior, sending in two spies to just kind of scout out the land and figure out what's going on before they attack. 
And so these two spies are putting themselves at a pretty high degree of risk. That's not a job. Talk about occupations that are hazardous. Like that's not a job that you'd want because what happens if you get caught? Doesn't end well for you. So there's a lot at stake for these two guys going into this town. And I'm sure the, the city was on, on high alert. And so the word gets back to the, the king that they're there. But the thing that's interesting is, is what I thought was the first thing I noticed in the text is where did the spies go to hide? I'm like, wait a second. They went to, their first stop in this town was coming into the house of a prostitute. Anybody else feel like when you first hear that, you're like, wait a second, that's kind of weird. Is it like, is, are they trying to check out the party scene or like what's, what's going on there in Jericho? But if you think about it logically, like how many men had been in and out of that house and had their identities hidden, right? So she would have been an expert at keeping somebody hidden. And so logically, probably one of the most safe places to sneak in and sneak out of because it was pretty commonplace, I imagine, in that town. So there's nothing in Scripture that points to any hint of, hint of immorality with Rahab. But her coming in, them coming in, they must have been noticed because the word gets back to the king. So the king sends what? I imagine doesn't specify there, but I imagine some people from the military to Rahab's house. And this is where I would describe where her faith is put to some degree of risk, right? A pretty major crossroad. You imagine that, that the, the door knocking, you look out the people, and, and there's, a, there's a couple guys with swords and spears standing there, and you're at that crossroad. She had this, this decision to make. She had to decide what to do. She had to decide what to do with her, uh, with her guests. She, was, she either had the potential to be a hero if she turned them in, or she was putting her family and her own life at serious risk if she lied and tried to hide them, right? Do you see the, why this was a major crossroads for them? So at that point, this was all hanging on the line, not just her future, but her entire family's future, all at this moment, this simple crossroads. And you think about in your own life, your own crossroads, your own crisis of belief. A lot of you can point back to a point where you first heard the, the saving message of, of Jesus Christ and where you had a crossroads of belief where you had to deci decide, what am I going to do with that message? What am I going to do with that truth? I think back in our own family's kind of timeline, if you will. My grandmother on my mom's side, she was at, I don't know how many years ago that would have been, but she attended a Billy Graham crusade and at one of those huge events, like many of us have been to before, she sat in the stadium and she came to that crossroad, like many of you can probably remember, whether it's in church service or here, is, uh, is that crossroad where she had to decide what was she going to do with Jesus Christ? Am I going to stand up and proclaim him as Lord or am I going to just sit there in silence? And I was thinking about that, what, a, what a, a powerful thing for each one of us has that choice to make. If you haven't made that de decision even here this morning, that's our prayer that you wouldn't leave here without getting that resolved. But here with the story that we look at of uh, Rahab, she made some interesting choices that were that, that those then goes on to influence her family and then generations to come. Look at what she says in verse 4b. It says, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they came from or where they were from, I mean. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. Stop there. I think uh, the first thing that comes to mind is wait a second, what was she doing there? 
I was taught in Sunday school class that you're not allowed to lie. Anybody else have a trouble with that when you read this text? I mean, that was the first thing that came to mind is like, man, she's, she's just roll, letting like one lie. I, I, don't, I didn't know who they were. I didn't know they left. I mean, it's just one lie on top of the other, and yet she's considered a woman of faith. You're like, what do you, what do, you do with that? Anybody else have uh, crossroads like that and you're, when you're reading text? And I was reading some different commentators. I thought this was, in one, one said this. It says, in the fear of God and in the walk of faith, Worthy saints have chosen to oppose the effects of evil by concealing the truth from wicked men. What's interesting here is she, backed into a corner, feels constrained by the extreme situation to oppose evil by lying. What's interesting, though, is nothing is ever said in the text that condones it or encourages it. That's not what's pointed out. But you also have to remember that this was the very first step of a pagan woman living in sin with no biblical background. I'm guessing she didn't have a, a nice plaque of the Ten Commandments on her, on her wall in the brothel. You know what I'm saying? Like the, that, that, that wasn't part of the decor. And so she's starting from scratch. And so what God looks to, what, is God, what does Scripture say? He doesn't see the outward stuff. He sees straight to the heart. He sees her heart. And even though she maybe made some unwise choices with how she responded, God could have been even more amplified with his radical way he could have saved them if she would have spoken truth. But God works with us despite poor or good decisions, right? Like scriptures, jam-packed of examples of that. So God uses good and bad choices for his glory. So this pagan sinner with no background in the things of God is commended for her faith. It's talked about in the New Testament in Hebrews 11, again in James 2.25. Multiple times it's pointed to it is about her faith. She took a serious risk. She put herself on the line and her entire family. I don't know if you've had an opportunity like that where you've maybe taken some step of risk or, 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 or something radical. Not all of us have those opportunities that come to life. You never know if you're going to sneak by. But I was thinking about that. We were trying to think of examples or ways to picture this, this risk or this, this trust exercise. And I don't know if you guys have done it at some point in your life, maybe at camp, one of those trust falls. Have you ever done that? I remember at one camp doing that and you fall back and that sinking feeling of, wait, are they going to catch me or not? I, we tried to recreate it when I was a young adults pastor, uh, we, but we wanted to kind of do it like amplified a little bit. So we had a gymnast in our group and long story short, we had him go to the top of a six foot ladder, do a handstand and then drop backwards into a group catching them. So that was like the most extreme version we could think of the trust fall. But to some degree, I think of that being the picture of, of Rahab right in this moment saying like, hey, this is it. There's no backing out of this. This, this, is, this, is, this is all or nothing. She had some decisions to make, and she put the, made the choice to take a step out in faith and take a risk. Take a look as we continue in the, the text, kind of how that plays out for her. In verse 6, as we see that following also involves trust. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order, in order on the roof. That would have been how they, they make uh, material for making clothing. So the men pursued after them on the way to Jordan as far as the fords, not the car, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. 
Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof, and she said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites, and who were beyond the Jordan to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and we were, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Love that. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I've dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father, my mother, my brothers, and my sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully to you. A little bargaining there. Then she let them down by the rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or your pursuers will encounter you, and hide there for three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Let's pause there. I know that was a lot to swallow, but that's kind of the summary of the the story of how it played out after the coast was clear. So after the guys came knocking on the door, she had that moment, that crossroads in her belief and her faith. She, then, then she has she rushes right up to after they leave, after the coast is clear, to talk to them. And I love it because it's probably one of the more powerful uh, professions of someone's faith that you can see in the Old Testament. Look in verse 11b what she says. She describes the, the Lord. She says, For the Lord your God... He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. She acknowledged who he was. She knew directly. She wasn't, it wasn't a God, small letter G. It was the God. Like I mentioned last week, the stories of God's miraculous deeds rippled through these different cities. His miracles, if you think about it, are an extension of his grace because all these grand, grandiose things that he did from Elijah with the, Elisha with the bears to here they describe the, the account that's 40 years old now, the account of the, the Red Sea being parted for them leaving uh, Egypt. All of these things formed what she had a decision to make. Rahab took the information that she had, the one of the old stories, but then also the newer stories, the account that they've recently defeated the Amalekites, and now their next, Jericho's next on the list. She took all of this information, she gathered input, and then she came to a conclusion about who God is. You think about it, that's the same thing that's true today in today's world. People have a choice to make. They have the, 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 the stories of the past. I mean, we just saw it on the big screen with a, a bad portrayal of Noah just recently. We just saw, I mean, it's, it's, it's all around us. People are familiar with the accounts of the Old Testament, stories of God's greatness. And like you talk to any Joe Blow on the, on the street, they can point to different Bible stories that maybe they've heard secondhand. But not just old stories, also new stories. New stories of somebody they knew that their, their life was redirected or changed. People have this information and it's laid out before them and they have a choice to make as to where they place their trust. I've mentioned my uh, older sister often in uh, services, but her job, 
she works in a pretty challenging job where she visits people in hospice that are terminally ill. So she basically visits people in their homes, and really she sees it as a, as a fantastic opportunity to give one last degree of, of hope and explanation of the, the gospel truth to people. She comes back with just the most crazy, extreme stories of God meeting people in their very last moments. It's pretty, pretty interesting just chatting with her. She's telling me, giving me a, a one story she's telling me about that was unrelated to her job. She was on a flight somewhere and said, sitting next to the person uh, and start, struck up a conversation. You know how you kind of have that crossroads where you can either pretend like they don't exist and just look forward, or you actually acknowledge their existence and talk with them. Uh, I ho- Hopefully we as Christ followers make uh, the latter choice and engage more often than not. Well, in this instance, she had a long conversation with these, the, this gentleman that was sitting next to her and got an opportunity in the conversation to just lay out who Jesus was and how he loved her and how by putting her trust in him, or his eternity could be redirected. And you could see at some point she was saying in the conversation that, that he was grabbing hold of some of what she was saying. But then it kind of turned a corner where he, she, he started to get, kind of show a little bit less interest as she's talking about. But she asked one last question. She said, hey, just wondering, what, it would, what would it take in your life for you to acknowledge that there's a God and finally put your trust in him? What would it take? Like, how long, what would it take it to move you from off the fence to actually embracing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And she said, he kind of said with some, some sarcasm, he was headed to a, a golf tournament somewhere in the Carolinas area and was headed to a golf tournament. And he's like, man, he's like, look out the window and the whole forecast for the whole weekend, it's supposed to rain, it's supposed to be miserable. I don't even know why I'm, I'm going on this trip. And uh, he said, you know what? If, if God could, could give me sunny skies this weekend on the golf course, then maybe I'd believe him. Like, it's kind of like, ha ha, like good luck with that kind of a joke. And she, and she turned to him and she said, well, I'm going to pray that that happens. And when you look up and you see those sunny skies, you remember this conversation. And, uh, and he's like, all right, crazy lady. And, uh, and, and so uh, you can guess where this, this story is going. So all weekend, she's just like, all right, God, here, we're putting you to the test. Sure enough, look up, blue skies, perfect sun, all weekend, perfect weather, golfing, uh, golfing person's dream weekend, all weekend. She never had a conversation with him again, but those are the kind of things that mark somebody's memory. Like, that's hard to get out of your head, right? That's the same that was the case with Rahab. She had heard the stories. She'd seen the stories. She was in the middle of it, and she had a crisis of belief, and she came to the point where she had to trust but I was thinking about it, once she, once she stepped out of the boat, once she did that extreme trust fall, there was no turning back, right? You can't go back to the guards and be like, sorry guys, I was lying about that. You know, like they wouldn't have, that wouldn't have gone well for her, especially on the social ladder that she was on. Like that, that wouldn't have gone well. So there's no turning back. And my hope, and there's really no sign or point of that anywhere in scripture pointing to her ever turning back. Once she made that decision that she decided to follow, made me think of the song, that old hymn, I've decided to follow Jesus. You guys can maybe remember the, the lyrics to that. I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. Though I may wander, which is possible, I still will follow. No turning back, no turning back. I would sing it for you if I had a good voice. The world behind me, the cross before me, no turning back, no turning back. Though none go with me, still I'll follow. No turning back. And that's the, that's the crossroads that she, ha- she came to. She had to place her trust in him. And here's the thing. 
I am yet in my lifetime, and maybe you can think of the conversations you've had with somebody older in their life, I've never had the conversation with somebody that said, you know what, I chose to fully dive in and follow Jesus Christ, and I wish I wouldn't have done that. Like, have you ever heard that? You've never heard that. Because when we do choose to step out and trust and follow him fully with our lives, there's nobody, there's no example that I can point to of someone that says, oh, that was a bad decision. That was a poor choice. No, it's more, if anything, met with affirmation of, I'm so glad when I came to that crisis of belief where I was going to place my trust, I trusted in him. But that doesn't mean that there's not, uh, there's not some challenges in that choice. Look at verse 18. That following also involves some opportunities for obedience. Look at verse 18. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie the scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house, and we're going to conclude with this section, the doors into your house, into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have, have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she went, sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. One of the trends that you'll see in following Christ is this, is first, there's the opportunity to proclaim him verbally, to profess that, yes, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to follow him. In her case, that was the, the crossroads with that interaction with the guards at the door where she professed. She went up later and said, hey, I believe your God is the God. That was the crossroads. That was the verbal part. But then here's the fun part and where we end up losing a lot of people is the crisis not just of, of verbally proclaiming it, is the crisis of obedience. In James, we studied last, uh, last year, the book of James talks all about the partnership of, of faith and works, right? The relationship that one validates the other. One shows what we truly believe by our actions. And so she comes to this place where she has the perfect response, where she believed and acted. Her response is key. If you'd notice in the text, she had made this deal with the spies. If you, uh, as you look back, where she had to decide, listen, hey, if I'm going to set you free, if I'm going to protect you, you got to protect me when you attack the city. So they have this arrangement. But the thing that's neat that you'll see in the text is in the arrangement, God provides some serious opportunities for obedience in her life. I broke them into three categories. The first one was this. The first one, I, I wrote down the word share. The first thing that she had to do, if you think through this logically, she had to go and tell her family and loved ones that this was about to go down, right? Can you imagine that conversation like with her, or with her family? You did what? You protected who? Like, are you crazy? But listen, she stepped out in faith, obedience, even by communicating this to her own family. I've been on a couple different uh, serving trips over the years a lot, and one of them was uh, to Dearborn, Michigan, and we were working with a, a mission in the center of the town there. If you don't know this, Dearborn, Dearborn, Michigan has the highest Muslim population 
anywhere outside of the Middle East. Isn't that interesting? And so we were there and we were working with a ministry that was committed to reaching out to, to Muslims and introducing them to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ and talking with the director of the, this organization that was right in the center of town. It was a really neat ministry. Talking to her, which was also fascinating in that culture, uh, talking to her about it, she was saying how many times these young women would make a choice to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior but then the real obstacle, the real challenge was in obedience, then sharing that with the people that they cared about. She, she shared with me, the director saying like some, that they'd make that choice and they'd make that decision and then we'd never see or hear from them again. Like after they proclaimed that to their family, this was a degree of risk. And you think about Rahab in this situation, that could have gone really poorly for her as well. It talks about a mother and father in that, in that town and in that culture. They were pretty focused on worshiping idols that were outside of the, of the, of the belief in God as, as Yahweh. And so for her to proclaim this was a big deal. So at first she had to share with the people she loved the most. I don't know, maybe there's something we could take from that ourselves, right? Then the next thing that you'll see is that she had to act in obedience. She was asked to do a strange thing, to put this red cord out the window, like, I, like for, for her in the middle of that, that, that act of obedience would have been like, I would have started thinking like, wait a second, I'm already on the radar of the, of the military. Putting a, hanging bright red things out my window probably isn't a wise thing for keeping me like uh, off, the, off the radar. You know, her mind, I imagine, started to wrestle through that. But this, this act of obedience, they were said, hey, you need to do this to, to, in order to be protected. And she steps out in faith even that. Now, a couple thousand years later, we see that and we're like, whoa, that was a, a cool picture, kind of like the blood over the doorpost in Egypt of God, uh, but because of the, uh, of the blood of Christ, which it was forecasting, would be passed over, would be saved, and would be rescued, again, pointing towards Christ. But when she's in the middle of it, it was just an act of obedience, most likely something that didn't make a whole lot of sense to her. A lot of things in, in our walk with Christ, if you haven't noticed this already, are acts of obedience, and you're like, I don't really know how that's going to end or why I'm supposed to do that. I just know I'm supposed to do that. Anybody point to something in your own life that um, falls in that category? You're like, oh, I just feel tugged to do this. I don't, I don't know why. I don't know how it's going to end. Maybe that's with this, this announcement we've been doing for weeks and weeks saying baptism, like this act of obedience. It's an outward expression of an inward decision. Maybe that's what it is for you that you need to respond to. I don't, I don't know why the Bible tells me to do it, but there's no example apart from the thief on the cross of someone that was saved and not baptized. So maybe that's the act of obedience. But for her, it was the red cord. The third thing that you notice on the screen there is that she had to wait which is a hard thing to do a lot of times. Sometimes action stuff is easy. If there's anybody, anybody else that is pretty action-oriented, when somebody tells you something to do, you're like, hey, no problem. Sign me up for that. I don't mind crossing the T's, doing, dotting the I's, doing all the things that you ask of me. But sitting back and waiting is the hard part. What do, what do I mean by that? What did they ask her to do? She had to just remain in her house while all this chaos went down. Imagine while the, they're marching around the city and you're like, man, I, I don't want to stay in my house. So imagine like the, the degree of, of, of fear as there's panic setting in all around you. All you're asked to do is just wait in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the extreme. That's what the, she was called in obedience to do was to wait in her house. Who can tell me how the, the, the city of Jericho was eventually overcome? What happened to the walls? 
They fell down. Where did, where did uh, it say that Rahab lived? Huh. Another step of faith. Can you imagine? You start to hear a little bit of crumbling noise, the, the, the sound of all the walls around you starting to collapse. Like, can you, I, I imagine the scene, the picture, because it says that it protected her house, the whole city, all the walls falling down, one single home right there, right in the wall with a prostitute in the center of it. You know what I'm saying? Like, how cool is that? And a red, a, a red uh, crimson scarlet thing hanging out of the window. What a beautiful picture of how it works, a picture of even our world around us. When the walls are crumpling all around us, we're clinging to one thing. We're putting our trust and hope just in that one thing, in the saving power of Jesus Christ. That's it, period. That's what she was invited to do in obedience, and she did. She did, and in Joshua 6.25, you see that she was blessed for her obedience. It describes the fact that every single person in that entire city was destroyed except for her and her family because this decision that she made to put her trust in the true God Ultimately, Rahab goes on uh, after they've taken, after the Israelites have taken possession of the city. She goes on to marry a, an Israelite by the name of Salmon. His name's spelled Salmon, but I wasn't really sure what to do with that. Uh, from the tribe of, tribe of Judah, her son, it become, his name was Boaz. Anybody remember Boaz in the story with, with Ruth? Ultimately, 26 generations later, she's in the line that leads to Joseph, Jesus' legal father. Pretty cool to see. Not only was she rescued and redeemed, she was restored to being a beautiful bride with an awesome family line. You can see the, the account of Boaz, like he saw extreme success, was able to bless many others because of this simple act of trusting and faith. So her, as a, a picture, I was thinking about this, I'm like, why? Why did God even include this story, this account in Scripture? Why is that even there? Because this is a great picture of our God. This is a great picture of the extremes that he goes to to rescue. The extremes that he goes to to rescue. They didn't need this uh, account in order to come up with a strategic military plan, right? Like that, it was no help. Maybe helped with the mor morale when they got, the guys got back to the, the camp and they're like, hey, they're all melting over there and so we should move in. But, so morale, it was probably a boost, but military strategi strategy didn't help at all. So the beauty of this picture, in my mind, is the fact that it's an account of God pursuing a prostitute. God pursuing a prostitute in the midst of a, a city that had completely rejected him because he wanted to draw her to himself and redeem her and redirect her future and her family line's future. It's a beautiful picture. I think it's something we should cling to. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you for this account. It's kind of a random account of this prostitute in the middle of a city that's about to be destroyed, being rescued by you. I thank you for that picture of her that you made the choice to pursue her and draw her to yourself and her steps of obedience and faith was all that was needed. I pray for us to draw from that in our own walk with you, not to just be a, a professing of you with our mouth, but act, actually stepping out in acts of obedience. Maybe for us it's the same things that you're calling us to. Maybe you're calling us to, to share to talk with those we love and care about and about the extreme love that you've extended to us. 
Maybe it's for us, it's, it's not, not about sharing. It's just about, about obeying, about doing things that you know that you've clearly placed on our hearts to do. God, I pray that you'd stir and move in our hearts appropriately with that. Or maybe it's just a waiting thing. Maybe you've just invited us to just wait and trust in you. I thank you, God, that through this, it's a picture of your love and grace and how you make broken, messed up people beautiful things. We love you and praise you. Amen.